We're in John chapter 7 as we continue to walk through uh, John chapter 7 verse by verse. We're in um, going to pick up uh, in John 7 verse 25. Last week, Josh led us through the first 24 verses of um, of all of that, and uh, we're going to pick up where he left off uh, last week. If you were not here last week, I'd encourage you to go online and listen to that sermon. I trust you will be served um, by all of that. So as you go ahead and open up your Bibles to John chapter 7, I want to um, articulate the road uh, map for this morning. The first is the sermon title, which is Water, Thirst, and the Flowing Spirit. Now, granted, that's not a very good sermon title. However, it does point out the outline for this morning, and so maybe in that way it is helpful to you. It's meaningful. So first and foremost, I want to spend some time looking at the historical significance of this idea of water and help us understand to continue to grow the connection that John and Jesus are making with the events of this feast, the Feast of Tabernacles and his teaching, so that it would deepen our understanding and our affections for who Jesus is and based on what he says concerning himself. So first, some context, and then I want to look at Jesus' teaching specifically in verses 37 through 39. Lots of good things in these 25-some verses, uh, but I want to focus our time primarily there this morning, drawing out the idea of thirst, and then this idea of living water that flows from the heart, which John helps us understand is the Spirit. And then lastly, how does all of that, in John chapter 7 specifically, these uh, 20, 25, 26 verses shape and influence our pursuit as a church who desires to live for God's kingdom here, now, and forevermore. So, with all of that, would you please stand as we open up the word in John chapter 7 and as we read the word of the Lord, and then we will get to it. John 7, starting in verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come from my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him. For I have come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus said to them, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me, You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go, that that we will um, not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersia among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean to say, You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? And on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up, and he cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. 
Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Spirit said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officer says, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered him, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you a Galilean too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. As uh, Josh discussed last week in our beginning part of John chapter 7, this whole setting is taking place during the Feast of Booths. It's in John 7 uh, 7 verse 2, chapter 7 verse 2. And this holiday is called the Feast of the Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths or even the Feast of Huts. It has many different names. And it was celebrated each year as a reminder of God's faithful provision to his people in the Old Testament, where they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. See, God leads out his people out of slavery from Egypt, but because of their disobedience, which Josh pointed to last week, God kept them from the land of promise, and instead they sojourned in the wilderness for 40 years. And they constructed temporary huts or booths like the one beside me, a three-sided hut, And that's what they lived in until the God Almighty said, pick up and go. And that is how they lived for 40 years. During this time, even in the midst of their disobedience, God provided food, manna. It's what we looked back at on uh, John chapter 6. And water, both supernaturally. Manna from the sky and rock, or water from the rock. Exodus 17 and Numbers chapter 20. The Feast of Booth was the final feast in the Jewish calendar. It occurred somewhere during autumn after all the crops had been harvested and gathered in. In fact, Exodus chapter 23 calls this feast the Feast of Ingathering, where God's people not only looked at the past provision, but also looked at the present provision of the harvest that they just received. Now, unlike other feasts that may have had like some sober or weighty overtones, this feast was a feast of joy. Lots of uh, excitement and celebration as Jews pilgrim, they traveled from afar to appear before the Lord in the temple there in Jerusalem. And so this feast of Booth, it lasted for seven days. That's a celebration. Seven days marked by ceremonial sacrifices of animal and wine and water unto the Lord as the people remembered the provision that their ancestors received from God, that they 
were blessed and gave thankfulness to God for his current provision through the crops, and they also looked ahead with great anticipation for the much-needed rain to cover the ground between November and March, which is the rainy season in this area, which was a direct connection to their continued life and provision, uh, and provision. In the midst of this energetic feast with thousands of visitors, enters a man named Jesus, a guy from Nazareth. Some people think that he's a prophet. Others think that he is a threat. Others question if he is the Christ. Lots of opinion and a lot of gossip, verse 25. And they begin to say, is this man not the one that they seek to kill? See, unlike the in uninformed pilgrims that are journeying to Jerusalem, the people of Jerusalem, they know their leaders, and they know their leaders' intentions. And they say, this guy's speaking openly. Maybe they actually know that he is the Christ, but we know he isn't. Why? Because the Christ is someone we do not know where he comes from, and we know where Jesus comes from. I uh, assume there's an element of sarcasm that they're speaking with. They conclude regardless of what their be leaders believe, that Jesus can't be the Christ because they know where he comes from. To which Jesus replies in verse 28, you think you know me, but in fact there's one whom you must know, and it's God, the one who sent me. He is true, and you don't know God, and that is why you don't know me. Verse 30 this is the people's reaction. Somewhat understandable. Empathize with me for a second. These Jews believe that they're God's people. Right? Celebrating God's law in God's feast, in God's place, with God's provision, next to the temple. And Jesus is saying, you don't know him. You aren't his because you haven't accepted me. Verse 32. And the leaders hear the crowd murmuring and muttering about these things. Now some people show belief, yeah, and others try to arrest him. And so the leaders send these officers to uh, arrest Jesus. Now these officers aren't Roman soldiers. Okay? Instead, they're studied Jewish men who themselves were a set of the Jewish leadership who were set aside to maintain control and order in the midst of the temple. And Jesus is teaching these things in the temple and lots of people are coming and going, lots of anticipation and excitement, a little nationalistic, messianic antici uh, anticipation and pride is in the air, and Jesus, in their opinion, is simply stirring up trouble and needs to be silenced. And so they go to him, verse 33, and Jesus says these things, I will be with you a little longer, then... I'm going to him who sent me. See, Jesus is pointing towards his death roughly six months from now in the biblical calendar where Jesus will go unto the cross. He's gonna be crucified three days later. He's gonna be raised from the dead and soon thereafter he's gonna ascend and he's gonna sit at the right hand of the Father. And Jesus tells them, you're gonna seek me and you will not find me pointing to the reality that the Jewish people, in their despair, they will seek for deliverance, but it will be too late. Now, why 
Why is that? Verse 34, it's the second sentence in that verse. Jesus says, where I am, you cannot come. This is significant. There is no room to stand before the Father for those that have rejected his Son. That's what Jesus is saying. He says, you want to be God's people? You and I in this place right now, we want to be under the good and kind hand of grace and mercy where your sin and my sin has been dealt with so that you don't get God's punishment, you don't get his wrath, you don't get his heavy hand of righteousness upon you, but instead you get ushered into his presence to be with God the Father who sent Jesus. If we desire all of those things, then you can't reject his son. That's the gospel. If you reject the Son, the Father will reject you. Sadly, they, they, don't, they don't understand that. And they don't understand what Jesus is saying, at least here in verse 35. And they say, like, where does this guy think he can go that we can't come? And in their attempt to either slander Jesus or speak poorly of him, verse 35, they unknowingly make a powerful prophecy. Because the Greek world, the Gentiles, all those non-Jews are going to hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ and Jesus is going to go to them through the mouths and lives of people. Read the book of Acts, praise God. And the mockers will mock and even seek and they will do so in vain. Verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, seven good days of full celebration, the feast of remembrance of God's provision in the past in the wilderness, God's current provision in the crops, and the plea to God to provide in the future, the rainfall, the stage is set. And a careful reading of the text points to us what is about to happen. See, unlike other conversations in this chapter, where Jesus is either actively teaching or he's responding to interactions with other people, here in verse 37, we see two profound differences that mark this interaction. Verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up, And he cried out. Those are the differences. He stood up and he cried out. Which begs the question, what did Jesus just interrupt? Doesn't it? He just stood up and he cried out. What did he just interrupt? And and the answer is we don't don't really know. I I wish I could tell you that I knew exactly. But but we don't really know what Jesus uh, interrupted. But I think this is what happens if you think about the context of what is going on. So verse 37 tells us that it's on the last day of the feast, so the feast is still taking place. And we see from other Jewish traditions what was taking place during the beginning each one of these days. So I'm going to walk through that process. First of every one of these days, including the last day, is a water offering. Each morning, During the Feast of Booths, a water offering was offered to the Lord as a visual prayer for rain. As one commentator put it, shortly after dawn each morning, 
While the many sacrifices were being prepared, the high priest was accompanied by a joyous procession of music and worshipers down to the pool of Siloam, which is located south of the temple. We'll look at a map here in just a minute. The high priest carried a golden pitcher capable of holding a little more than a quart. And he carefully dipped the pitcher into the pool and he brought it back to the temple mount, reaching the southern gate of the temple. And with three blasts of the trumpet sound, he went into the temple and all the other priests with one voice repeated the words of Isaiah 12, verse 3. Can you change it to that? There it is. I want us all to say this together. Ready? With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. That's what they shouted. Moving to the great stone altar in the inner court of the temple, reaching the silver basin which drained to the base of the altar, he'd raise the pitcher and he'd pour the water into the basin while all the people in attendance listened to the Levites sing praises from Psalms 113 through 118. And it's my opinion, it's not the text, but it's, it's formed by some smarter people than I, that Jesus' words, that he stands up and he shouts in verse 37 and 38 are right before or during the time when the high priest is pouring the water from the pitcher to the altar. When everyone is on the edge of their seats with eager anticipation and focus as the water interacts with the glorious stone altar of God. All is quiet. There's no singing or praise at this point. No trumpet sounds, just intense, focused on the mediator of God, beseeching the God of hosts for the blessings of water, not to mention that the results of this The needed rainfall for the year could literally result in life or death. And Jesus stands up and he cries out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the spirits have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What a moment to proclaim such a truth. We've seen Jesus proclaim eternal truths through the metaphor of water before. We've seen it in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well. We saw it in John chapter 1 with the water and baptism. We saw it in John chapter 2 with water being turned into wine. Water is a popular illustration in the Gospel of John, and it makes sense. Right here we are some 2,000 years after the fact and even with lots of advancements in sports drinks. How many sports drinks are out there these days? Energy drinks, coffee, be it cold or hot, like any number of other fluids, water itself remains a necessity of life. This is crazy to me. As central as food is to the human body, I looked this up, and it, there's like a wider range of opinion on how long the human body can last without food. Some people say as much as three months. Good for you. I'm never going to try that. 
Meanwhile, the human body can only go about three days without water. Three days! And as if that isn't enough for us to sip on, Jesus' timing and the feast connection draws out further meaning and depth to this idea of water and him being the greater water. This pool of Siloam is not just some convenient water source that is connected to this feast. But like the well of Jacob, it had significant worth and meaning in the life of the Jewish people. Here's a couple reasons why it was significant. Jacob, go ahead and go to the next slide. Oh, that's it, perfect. First is the type of well that it, the type of water that it was. See, during this time, there were three primary water sources that sustained life during this day and age. One of them was a cistern. It's a large rock cavity that's carved out and it collects rain runoff. Millions of gallons of water in one of these guys. That's the first one. The second are wells, right? Literal holes dug into the earth and they hit the water table. Both could work um, well considering that Jerusalem receives about 20 inches of precipitation a year. That's the equivalent to London, England, by the way. That's a lot of water. However, both are vulnerable to contamination and to drying up if the rain does not come. The third and most valuable water source were streams, brooks, or rivers fed by springs known in the biblical time as living waters or water with movement. Which leads us to the second reason this water was meaningful. This map shows us a little bit of a picture. I, I had a a laser pointer, but it doesn't show up on the, uh, on the screen. On the bottom right-hand side, you can see this little small Gion spring that's on the bottom right-hand side of that guy, okay? So in the 8th century B.C., King Hezekiah, one of the kings of the southern kingdom of Judah, during the invasion of the Assyrians, he foresees the Assyrians are coming. And he's a smart enough guy that says, okay, they're going to come and they're going to invade Judah, my kingdom, and they're going to they're gonna, uh, try to invade Jerusalem. And so he commissions the building of a tunnel, okay, where uh, 533 meters inside the walls of the city, he builds a channel for the water from the Gion Spring on the right-hand side outside of the city walls to come into the city, and it results in the formation of the Pool of Siloam. Literally providing life to the city of Jerusalem when the Assyrians show up and they beseech the city. The final and most noteworthy reason the Jews revered this water was it was the second and the last stop on their pilgrimage journey to the temple. See, all Jewish men were required to travel to Jerusalem to celebrate the three main feasts, Passover, Pentecost, and the, the, and the Feast of Booths. Where they would first stop at this well and they would purify themselves with its water and then they'd enter the temple. 
they would enter God's presence. You see, this water in this golden pitcher was meaningful water. It was precious water, water of great value, water that, would, that literally provided real life in the midst of death, water that was supplied by a living source, a spring, and water that was used to wash oneself before you were allowed to enter into the presence of God in the temple. And here Jesus is in the midst of all of that, and he says, drink of me. Come to Jesus and drink of the true and the better water. Water that provides everlasting life. The water that truly purifies. The waters whose source is from the eternal fountain of the living God. Jeremiah Chapter 2, verse 13 says this, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And instead, they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Isaiah 58, verse 11 says this, And the Lord will guide you continually, and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Don't miss this. The whole feast, the whole feast of booths, the whole feast of tabernacles could be summarized as people pointing one another to God's past provision, his current provision, and calling out, God be faithful. Do it again. And Jesus says, he's doing it right here. Look at me. Come and drink. For Jesus has the true and the better water. Point number one, water and the feast of booths, it's all about Jesus. He's the better water. Point number two, thirst. Verse 37, Jesus' water, these are his words. He says, if anyone thirsts, like see, marinate on this with me for a moment. See the amazing heart of our Savior here. Think about who he's talking about who he's talking to. Moments and, not, and, and days and many, many other days of being rejected by these people over and over and over again and he continues to invite them in. Come. If you thirst, if you are, if you are heavy laden, if you are hungry, Jesus invites the broken to his table and the only requirement that seems necessary is that you must know that you are thirsty. You see, Jesus, as a spring of living water, is of no value to you unless you know that you are without and that you are thirsty for him. Jesus, as the fountain of life, is no value to you if you believe he's simply one of many water sources that will satisfy you. 
Do you know and do you realize you thirst for Jesus? If you're here this morning and you know of Jesus, you know about Jesus and you know these biblical accounts of Jesus, but you haven't experienced and confessed your need, your thirst for him, I think this text would argue that you have not yet drank from him. And therefore, you have not believed in him. And there is no room to stand before God for those that have not believed and accepted in his son. So come. Thirst. Drink. And believe in Jesus. Fellow believers, you still know your thirst for Jesus? Do you still see your need for Jesus? I'm turning uh, 35 this coming summer. Somebody told me just a couple days ago, I thought you were a lot older than that. And I said, yeah, it's probably because of all of my gray hair. By God's grace, I got saved pretty young. And every year that I walk with Jesus, I see as older, wiser saints have told me is true of them, as each passing year goes, my eyes are enlarged to my need for Jesus. Therefore, I thirst often. I actually thirst more, know more of my thirst today than I did when I was 25 years old. I actually know and understand my thirst for my king more today than I probably ever have in my life, praise God. He keeps showing me how desperate I need his all-sufficient work. Believers, do you know your thirst and that Jesus is the true and better drink, the only cup of living water that he alone can provide? Water, thirst, and now the flowing spirit. John, the author, is helpful to us as he points out the meanings of Jesus' last statement in verse 38. He says, whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Verse 39, thank you, John. He tells us that this flowing river of water is the spirit, the promised spirit, that the one that will come yet hasn't. Why? Because Jesus has not yet gone to the cross. He has not yet um, been raised from the dead and later ascended to the Father. That's the glorification that must be done in order for the Spirit to come. And that hasn't happened yet, therefore the Spirit isn't given. That's what he's saying. Why is all of that? John, again, is helpful to us. He says, whoever believes in me as the Scripture has said. Now there's no one text that Jesus is quoting from here. Instead, Jesus is pointing to overarching principles found in the Old Testament which promised the giving of flowing water 
which we now know from John chapter 7 points to the gifted Holy Spirit, the one that would be given after the glorification of Jesus. So this is a sermon series in and of itself, and we're not going to take that kind of time. In short, up to this point, the temple, before that, the tabernacle, in the biblical account, was the place where God would meet with his people. You can read about that in Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. And then in 1 Kings chapter 5, we see a guy named Solomon. He's the son of King David. Solomon gets to build the house to the Lord. He gets to build the first temple. Get this. This doesn't just happen by accident. Solomon builds the first temple, and on this same feast over a thousand years prior to Christ, he dedicates the temple, and in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 3, the glory of God lights up the altar, and his presence fills the Holy of Holy inside the temple of the living God. That's not a coincidence. Marching on in biblical history, the temple gets destroyed, the physical building that housed the glory of God. uh, He departs as the temple gets leveled in 586 B.C. And about 50 years later, a remnant of God's people return to Jerusalem and they begin to start building the second temple where the prophet of Haggai is commissioned by God during the building of the second temple, and he tells his people this. Haggai chapter 2, verse 6, it says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and dry ground, and I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of the nations will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declared the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. And here Jesus is, in the exact same physical space, at the second temple, during this exact same feast, saying that he is bringing the water. He's bringing the Spirit. Not to reside in some building, but in a people. For the temple used by God to dwell with man will no longer be a physical structure, but as 1 Peter chapter 2 says, of all the saints, we are the living stones of the spiritual house who are being built up by God. If you are a follower of Jesus who believes in his life, his death, and his glorious resurrection, who purifies you, that you were once dirty in your sin, I was dirty in my sin, and now we are righteous in Christ. Not only are we gods, are we with God, he resides in you. That's what Jesus means when he says, out of your heart flows rivers of water, rivers of the almighty spirit. Water 
thirst and the flowing spirit. And we see from all of this in John chapter 7, verses 40 through 52, there's a lot of reactions to what Jesus just taught. Some people say he's a prophet. Others say he's a Christ. The officers who were um, commissioned to go arrest Jesus stand in awe of his teaching. That's what happens. They come back empty-handed. They ask, well, why didn't you do what we asked you to do? You don't understand. Nobody's ever taught like this guy. Not even you. That's what they're saying. And the Pharisees are blinded by those truths, even to the point of disregarding biblical truths like condemning Galilee as a place where no prophet might come, forgetting that the prophet Jonah and Hosea came from Galilee. That's the reality of spiritual blindness. God is indeed shaking the nations with the person of Jesus as the Christ. That's what Haggai was prophesying to. See, Jesus will come onto the stage and he is gonna fill up the house of God with people who have the flowing spirit that resides in them. All the treasures of the nations will come as God's people, now a new temple, and they will fill the earth. So here's the kicker. Do you believe and do you trust that that spirit is living water in you today? Do you believe that the spirit of God is eager and he's willing to use you? He's willing and he's eager to use me as broken as we are, to water the dry ground around us. To give the cool drink of the gospel to thirsty people. Do you believe, do I believe that when people interact with us, that they are seeing and in some mysterious way interacting with God's dwelling place here on earth, which resides in you. Often I don't. That's my answer. I get caught up, think about, and even dwell on lots of other things, some of which are my insecurities, where I'm either like too concerned about people's uh, uh, rejection of me or their thoughts of me or, or the conversation as I get into the conversation, like maybe they're gonna ask questions like I don't know all the answers to. And if I don't get caught up in one of those two things, the fear of man or feeling like I'm unprepared, I'm often preoccupied in my mind and heart towards like transactional relationships. I got things to do. Man, I got things to do. Help me get those done. If you can't help me get those done, like I don't have time for you. Hurry up and make that hose or whatever I need. Like, let's go. I need lunch. Let's get it. Come on. Give me that Qdoba burrito. I'm busy. Instead, 
I'm supposed to be the temple. You're supposed to be the temple. The one that overflows. Overflows with water, the space where God most high dwells. Who's leading us by his spirit so that we might do his work. All to his kingdom's end and not, not my own kingdom but his. It's encouraging to think about I've been following Jesus for uh, I think over 20 some years. Many of you have been following Jesus for for much longer than that. Praise God. Statistically, like, I should already have this figured out. I think it takes 10,000 hours to become proficient at something. Guess what? 20 years, I should have this figured out. Those of you that know me, you know my gifts and you know my weaknesses. You know in the flesh, I'm I'm not a gifted evangelist. That's not, that's like terrifying to me. You know, in the flesh, I don't like meeting new people. I don't. I like my people. And I only need three of you. One of them's Emily. So that leaves two. In the flesh, I don't like small talk. I don't. Some, most of you don't know this. In, in the flesh, I'm a pessimist. I'm a, I'm a glass half-empty guy. If it's even half-full. In the flesh, I have a tendency to bulldoze over people. I'm a short guy, small-statured guy. I am a very big leader. You know in the flesh that I have fear of man and that I wrestle with all kinds of pride. But God is not done. God is not done with me and he is not yet done with you. He can, and he is working. He is, he is leading by his spirit, and he is accomplishing his almighty work. Praise God. Let us be a people and a church who continue to live for that almighty work, God's glorious kingdom here, now, and forevermore as his spirit-rich temple who are led by his spirit and by his great mercy doing the work of God, watering the dry ground with the gospel of Jesus for those that are thirsty for it. Amen? Who are you supposed to water? Let's pray. Lord God, great are you. 
and greatly to be praised. That you saw in your wisdom uh, the need and the joy and the blessing of giving forth your spirit, the water that ought to cascade into our lives and their fl- uh, flow out of them, Lord God, like a full cup that can't contain it. God, I pray that as we walk around this city, as we interact with people, Lord, did you just continue to kill the inner man and make us walk in the abundant life of Christ? That people would see and experience and they would hear the good water that your spirit provides as they interact with us. Lord, that we would encourage one another to that end. And that as we see, Lord God, fruit, that we would be quick to point out that is the Spirit at work. Oh, Lord God, it's the Spirit at work. Continue to build your house and bring your people in, Lord God. Use us unto that end for your great glory and our great and unending joy. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.